Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Hey, Brad, how's everything going? Things are um, things are particularly interesting today. Um, listeners will hear in the conversation the details, but um, prior to um, prior to this recording session, I had a special visitor in my garage gym. I um, I finished a set of bent over rows, and I looked up, and there was an enormous black bear about two feet from me. So I was full on stress response, level 10. I was able to get a picture, which is very important. There's proof that this happened. We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> Indeed. And um, after this conversation with our so thoughtful guest, Amelia, I am feeling stress level one. So hopefully we can do that for you too. So what you're saying is that if the first part of this podcast, you hear Brad jittery and hopped up on adrenaline, there is a reason, but he comes down from the adrenaline high. Um, thanks in large part to our special guest, Amelia Boone, who is an attorney for Apple, a multiple time Spartan racing world champion. And she also has done many ultra uh, marathon races. She's basically an all-around all-star. But she's also someone who has dealt with mental illness, eating d- disorders, and more. And in this conversation, we're going to dive into some of these more difficult topics that aren't discussed enough. We hope that you find value in them. We hope that you appreciate the level of vulnerability that Amelia shows. And also, you know, Brad and I you know, share our own stories as well. So this is a conversation that I think uh, many will find valuable and useful. And I'm just thankful that we're able to have it. Amelia, welcome to the Growth Equation podcast. We're, we're really glad that, um, that you're here. How are you doing yeah. today? I am doing very well today. Thank you very much. So I'm excited to be here. That's great. Um, so as, as our listeners know, um, September is National Suicide Prevention Month. Uh, I think it's actually Awareness in Prevention Month. So we are taking some time to have conversations about mental health and mental illness. Um, mental health and mental illness affects lots of people, including high performers, high achievers, oftentimes the people that you would never guess that it affects. And one of those individuals is Amelia, who, as you just heard in introduction, is national class at law, national class at Spartan racing, just a hell of an athlete, a hell of a person, but um, has a mental health journey. And we thought that um, it would be fitting to have her on the show. So Let's just dive right in, Amelia. Could you share a little bit about your your journey? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I um, I think it's it's one of those questions where you say, "How far back do you want to go with this?" Um, but I, from a very early age, was was diagnosed um, as 
I think early on, I think they thought I was kind of a troubled child, um, a very anxious child. Um, and then I was actually diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, probably when I was about eight or nine. Um, and that took the form of a lot of phobias, a lot of fears, a lot of intrusive thoughts, um, a lot of your classic rituals that you would, um, are, that are associated with obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and then around the age of 15 or so, those obsessions started manifesting in the form of food. And I started becoming very fearful of food and I didn't really know why. Uh, my parents at the time thought that it was probably just another manifestation of the obsessive compulsive disorder and didn't really know much about eating disorders. And I didn't either. Um, but things spiraled really quickly in terms of I started restricting food heavily um, and be, got to a point where I became very medically unstable. Um, and so I was hospitalized my sophomore year of high school for a few months um, to be medically stabilized um, and diagnosed with anorexia at that point. Um, and I remember thinking, no, 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 I don't have a problem with food. Like I swear I'll eat and things like that. And things that you don't really wrap your head around um, until kind of afterwards where I realized like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like something's wrong. This isn't normal. And, um, so that was about 20 years ago. And I went through a few iterations of treatment after high school and college, went through ups and downs with relapse and recovery. And then when I finished a round of treatment before law school, I told myself I was sick of being the sick girl. I didn't want to be the sick girl anymore. People knew me as, you know, the person that was in and out of treatment that was fighting to stay alive at points. And so I said, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. And I'm behind it, or it's behind me, and I'm over it. And I'm this new person. And I started racing. I um, you know, started working at a law firm. I got into obstacle racing. I was doing really well. Um, I was at the top of the sport. But I kind of knew in the back of my mind that old eating disorder tendencies were starting to creep in more, or maybe they had never left. But um, it, I spent several years kind of wrestling with the fact that these issues were still there for me. And, um, and then that started to manifest itself in a stream of stress fractures. Um, I competed for about five years in racing, zero injuries, was running I was racing pretty much every single weekend and just going hard, never took an off season and everything started crumbling down around me in terms of the physical manifestations of 20 years of starvation were finally taking a toll on my body and it was keeping me from doing what I love to do. And I knew that I needed to right the ship on my own. I knew that I, I knew that I was falling back in and I knew that I needed to eat more. I needed to be healthy to be able to run but I just could, the fear was too great to do it on my own. So 2019, a little over a year ago, I decided to check myself back into treatment, um, intensive treatment for eating disorder, um, and went through that process, um, last year. And then finally, for the first time, talked about it openly and, um, acknowledged that part of myself that, very few people knew about, um, or could have guessed. And, um, 
that's brought me to where I am today. <laughs> still, still in recovery, will always be in recovery. Um, but you know, fighting every single day to, uh, to, to really like, you know, keep, to keep myself in a solid place for sure. Wow. I mean, that's such a, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. That's such a powerful story. Um, a lot to unpack there, which we'll try, <laughs> we'll try to do over the next, you know, bit. Um, I, I think starting at the beginning, I'm really curious on the, you know, experience of having OCD as a child. I mean, many of our listeners know Brad's story um, with having OCD and many don't know, like, I had OCD as a child as well. Like it runs in my family very strongly. Um, so I'm just curious if you can take us back to that that point and kind of describe what was that like kind of having these intrusive thoughts and compulsions, at, especially at a young age and trying to yeah. make sense of that. Yeah. You know, I don't think I really grasped how hard it was at the time. I, what, what I do remember thinking over and over again is why can't I just be like the other kids? Because I knew that so many of these manifestations and the compulsions and the obsessions were actually preventing me from forming bonds and relationships with my peers. For instance, I had part of mine was this phobia of not being able to, if I, I thought that if I couldn't sleep enough that I was going to die. And, um, so it brought, like brought me to a point where I couldn't spend the night at other people's houses because I was terrified of not getting certain amount of sleep every single night. And that's really tough as a kid because you feel super ostracized. You know, your peers don't really understand. Like they're like, what is wrong with you? Why can't you spend the night with everybody else. Um, and I, and I just remember like laying on my bedroom floor and crying and being like, why, why can't I be like everyone else? What is wrong with me? And this very deep rooted feeling that there was something fundamentally wrong with me and I didn't know how to change it. And honestly, I mean, I'm almost 30 years removed from when I was first diagnosed and I still struggle with that. I still, over these the, my entire life, have had this feeling that there was something different and something wrong with me, and that I needed to like beat that part of myself out. Um, and that's been very pervasive throughout my life. You know, I think you hit something there that I think it deeply resonates with me and my experience, mm -hmm. and I'm glad you brought it out. Is that that feeling? is like, it, it feels a hundred percent real, a hundred percent rational. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm, I'm, I think that sometimes people forget that. Like you said that you felt like you were going to die if you didn't sleep. Like there were certain, if I didn't do certain routines at certain points, like mm -hmm. I would feel like, oh my gosh, if I don't do this, like my life is going to end. And it feels like your life is actually going to end. So, yeah. you, you know, I, I think like, is there any way you can help like listeners who maybe don't have experience with this kind of conceptualize or grasp how real these thoughts, feelings, compulsions kind of are? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the hardest thing that I, 
have struggled with, and it's not just, it's in the, it's also in, in the context of the compulsions in the obsessive compulsive disorder, but then also around the fears of food that I have had that literally make no sense to people when I list them out because a rational, logical person could tell you, no, Amelia, that doesn't make sense. Like that, that is not going to happen, but it is so real to the person that's experiencing it. So what I have, when people have asked me over the years, like, how can I help? Um, and then also my experience in seeing what works for people who have supported me and then also what is not helpful. It's really honestly to say, I, I hear you. I see you. I'm here. How can I support you? Instead of saying, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. Um, because there's a very diff, there's a difference between when feeling, when you feel dismissed, it's very hard with a person struggling with, um, you know, a disorder, a mental illness. And I think as humans, our default is we always want to reassure people that it's going to be okay and that they have nothing to worry about. But I think actually in the context of mental illness, that is not helpful to the person who is suffering at the time. You know, you need to hear that I believe you, you know, and that I am here to support you, but not tell them like, you shouldn't worry about that. You'll be fine. Um, Because that doesn't, it, it, it doesn't do anything for the person because we know that we know that logically and rationally, it doesn't make sense, but it is still so very real. Yeah. It's, it's just super, um, super visceral is the word mm-hmm. that I use. Like I know with my intrusive thoughts, it's less the thought and more the feeling that accompanies it. Yeah. And it's like, man, every bone in your body is saying that if you don't sleep in your case, you are going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been super public with it and written about it. And in, in my case, I was utterly convinced that I was going to lose control of myself and um, harm myself. So like mm-hmm. stab myself with a knife. And it is so irrational um, that, you know, me author with Steve, all this stuff could speak at a big company and then could come home to my kitchen and literally be terrified to be in the same room with a knife because I felt such an urge to pick it up and stab myself with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think it's just, I'm really glad that we got to touch on OCD because it, it's still such a misconstrued disorder where people hear OCD and they think that it's a tendency to be neat and orderly and have everything tidy. And if you've seen my closet, like I can very quickly um, assure you that, that that's not what OCD is. Oh, I'm um, with you there. <laughs> it, it's, it, it's having an intrusive thought that makes no sense, that generally speaking goes against what you value mm-hmm. and having an associated urge to act on that thought or feeling of anxiety um, with it. And then mm-hmm. trying to make that thought go away, which of course makes it come back stronger. And and I want to spend just a minute talking through this cycle because something like up to three percent of the population has OCD. So if we've got you know ten thousand listeners on this show, that's three hundred people that are listening that could have this. And OCD is often one of the most um, mistreated or not treated disorders 
because the thoughts that people have are so embarrassing and shameful that they don't get help. And the tragic thing is that OCD is also one of the most highly responsive to treatment of any mental illness Mm -hmm. and has a very high suicide rate because people don't get help. So if you're listening and you've had thoughts of having sex with an animal or killing your loved one or thinking that if you get it all dirty, your body's going to get invaded by bacteria. So therefore, you, you know, you're constantly washing yourself. You're not crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, there's all this correlation that OCD is associated with conscientiousness, which is a personality trait um, of high performance. So you're not crazy. You've got this thing malfunctioning in your brain that is super responsive to treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're listening and you're going through that, um, I would just really say, like, don't don't judge yourself. Don't hide that. You should go talk to someone about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the hard part because you're right. There is so much shame around openly speaking about what is in your mind when you know as a highly functioning person that it makes zero sense, but it seems so very real. But I think that entire, the shame keeps us sick because we're afraid to reach out. Yeah. I remember telling my first appointment with a psychiatrist um, that I thought he was going to like have me locked up in an institution Um, Mm -hmm. because I remember at that time, you know, one of the intrusive thoughts that had really taken hold of me was my wife was pregnant. And I thought that when we had the baby, I was going to throw it down the stairs. And little did I know that that's like one of the most common OCD thoughts. It's also so interesting that these completely irrational thoughts, like they're, they're pretty predictable patterns that, that other people have the same thoughts. And I told him like, you might lock me up, but here's what's going on. And I just remember he kind of like, smiled and said, like, you're not crazy. You have OCD. And the wave <laughs> of relief that I felt at that moment yeah. was so enormous. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, there's a ton of work that then goes with, like, how do you treat this thing? And, and how do you get your brain back on the right path? So, um, okay, all of that aside, uh, Amelia, the the relationship between an eating, do- an eating disorder and OCD, do you think that that those are two separate things or I guess what I'm trying to understand is an eating yeah. disorder to you, just a variety of OCD where the theme is like a, a, a fear of food. So instead of a yeah. fear of knives, instead of a fear of harming someone or yourself, the fear is food. Yeah. It's a great question because, well, first of all, I'm not a mental health professional. So, so if you are a mental health professional, you may disagree with what I say here. Um, but I think for me, in the way mine manifested, it very much seemed like an extension of OCD in some ways because of initially it being fears. And there are a lot of parallels. There are a lot of intrusive thought. I mean, an eating disorder really is intrusive thoughts all the time about food. It's just that, you know, they're revolved around a certain thing. Um, but I think that it really because because it is, you know, they, it's, it has, it's a, it's a separate disorder diagnosed as a separate disorder, but there is a lot of commonality, at least in how mine manifested. And I think that it was very hard for me then, um, this past year when I started to notice more of the 
OCD thoughts that are not related to food starting to pop up. And especially, I mean, it started around when the pandemic started and just being frustrated with myself and thinking like, God, I I thought I beat, I thought I got over all of that years and years ago. Um, But then realizing that, you know, it, it, it does seem to me like a very kind of different manifestation, but still along the same vein. Uh, along the same lines, you know, I'm curious if you think that um, OCD, those intrusive thoughts, like what role did they play into your getting into or success at like endurance competitions? <laughs> you know, it's a funny, it's a, it's a good question because I actually think that you know, you see a lot of very high performers um, and a lot of super functional, high performing people who deal with obsessive compulsive disorder, who deal with eating disorders. I think a lot of the things that I've realized that made me so good at, you know, whatever I did at school, at sports, at that athletics, that, that drive are a lot of things that also then can also lead to chaos and disorder inside your mind. Um and so it's been an interesting thing for me because sometimes I like to actually, and it seems counterintuitive, thank my eating disorder, thank my mental disorders, because in a way they've enabled me to be a very high functioning person. Um, and I know that sounds weird and off, but then realizing that they were tools that helped me, that actually enabled me to cope in a lot of ways because I didn't have any other coping mechanisms. I didn't have other tools. But now through recovery, through treatment, I realize like I have more tools in the toolbox and I don't need the coping mechanism of the eating disorder anymore um, to be able to survive. Um, And so I think that that's been kind of a way that I've reframed everything in terms of mental illness instead of being ashamed and embarrassed about it, saying, you know, it did its job, but I don't need it now. I, I, you know, I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I feel the same way. And, you know, I'm glad you answered that and validated yeah. the way I feel about it. But, <laughs> but it's like, you know, I, I was never, you know, th- went through treatment, never f- formally diagnosed on this stuff. But I am convinced 100% that the way I coped with it when I was younger was getting into running mm-hmm. and throwing myself into that and taking like, that became almost my obsessive compulsive thing to do. And I would still have like the intrusive thoughts and the still have um, that almost feeling like, Oh, if I don't get this run in, like something horrible is going to happen. So it like, but it was driving me in a somewhat successful route. So it was just another way to cope there, but I'm glad you like bridged that into where you are now that like, Yes, that can be a way that a lot of, again, high performers cope with it, but Mm -hmm. there's more to it than that. And there's a better way to still kind of have that performance, but also address some of the underlying issues. Yeah. Go ahead, Amelia. Sorry. Well, I mean, yeah. So what I was going to say is that I, what I've realized, and I think this is tough and it's harder when it comes to eating disorders because sport and exercise can be tied into that. But generally with mental illness, people always encourage you to be active and they encourage, you know, with depression, anxiety is that movement and exercise is going to help you and improve your mood and help you deal with it. And so 
people look at that as an incredible, you know, alternative coping mechanism. And I think that's great. I also believe that, and especially in high performing obsessive runners, that it is more of an escape than actually a way to deal with the underlying issues. So if you say, yeah, I mean, this is, this is great. I'm going to go out for a run and run it all out. And I come back and I feel great. Yeah, no, no wonder you feel great because you have endorphins. The run didn't solve anything. The underlying issue is still there. So I advocate for movement. I advocate for exercise, but I also think there needs to be more coping mechanisms in your toolbox than just that. Um, and that's kind of like the process where like that I've gotten to is like, Sometimes you need a nap. Sometimes you need a run. Sometimes you need to journal. Those are all like things that you can do to cope um, beyond just relying on one. Steve, going back to your experience, I'm I'm curious, and I know that we've talked about this a little bit um, on, on a couple of long hikes that I can remember, but just can you share what some of your themes or intrusive thoughts were? Because if I remember right, it's not like, you felt that, oh, if I don't run, I'm not going to be in shape and something's wrong, therefore I have to run, which isn't necessarily healthy, but a lot of runners have those thoughts all the time. It's what gets them out the door. Um, Can you share a little bit more about kind of the irrationality of some of the thoughts that got tied to running in your mind? Yeah. I I mean, my case uh, was similar to, I think, the experience Amelia described of when she was younger. But like, when I was younger, I was figuring things out and you'd have thoughts like you mentioned of like, Oh, if I don't do this, like I'm going to pick up that knife and kill my family member, which is hard to deal with when you're young and you have no idea, but it's also you're naive. So you can kind of brush it off a little bit to some degree. Um, But when I got into running, like I threw in that obsessiveness of like, I'm going to run this many miles. I'm going to do this much training. And it just kind of took that part of my kind of obsessive compulsive. I don't know how to explain it best, but it just kind of took that. And when I didn't, when I wasn't able to get in a run, like it wasn't like, oh, I'm not getting fit. Like I'm going to lose out on fitness. It was literally like, oh my gosh, my world's going to end like panic attack like I need to get this run in. And the best way I can kind of get this point across to others and my family would laugh at this now is that like we'd be on vacations and, you know, we'd drive, let's say from Texas all the way to, I don't know, Virginia or something. And it'd be like, you know, 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, we're pulling in to the hotel or whatever And my parents knew that because I didn't, wasn't able to run all day, that I was going to go out for a run. And that if they argued with me, like it didn't matter because like I was going to do it because I thought if I did not get this run in, like my world was literally going to come crashing down on me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I wonder how much of that, you know, we, we hear these stories of great performers and often those kinds of experience and habits are portrayed in this really celebrated light. Like, Oh, this person Mm -hmm. was so dedicated. Yeah. And that's not always the case. Sometimes they're, they're doing it out of pure compulsion. 
Um, so yeah. yeah, yeah, it's, it's, you know, and that's why, you know, I asked Amelia that question. Cause I think it's this interesting in, interplay. It's, it's like, you know, it, it is a coping mechanism and I'm glad she brought out, it, it's like having a hammer and all you know how to do is like hammer things. That's how I see like running or endurance exercise or exercise in general for something like obsessive compulsive disorder. But like, as Amelia said, like we need more than that. And I think if I look at periods in my life, I still kind of see that like obsessive compulsive, like fueling some of the things that I do really well. Yeah. But if you have the support and you have the other coping like strategies to like keep that in somewhat check and balance, I think that's the best that we can get. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, a hundred percent. the The experience that I I have where it's like a gift and a curse is there are times when I get into the zone um, writing or editing something that I've written, and the only way to describe it is it's the same as being stuck in like an OCD thought loop, mm-hmm. except it's geared towards something productive. So you know, a freaking ambulance could run (laughs) through the hallway with its sirens on and I wouldn't notice what's happening because I'm just so attached to and focused on the work. And the dark side of that is when there's an intrusive thought of what's the meaning of life. And then for the next three hours, you know, anything could happen. You could have, you know, your, for me, it could be Barack Obama could show up to have a beer and talk about reading and writing. And I'd be like, sorry, Brock, I can't talk. I have to figure it out. Um, so it really is like the gift and the curse. I'm curious, Amelia, do you, mm-hmm. in, in your learning how to, and I know you use the word cope to cope, to live. Yeah. Do, is it about realizing and naming this capacity to obsess as a tool and then Mm -hmm. trying to use it wisely? Or is it about actually trying to turn the volume down across the board? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, for me, I think that I have to differentiate between the obsessive compulsive type of part and then the eating disorder part, because I, for the eating disorder, it's more trying to turn the volume down across. Um, It's trying to get the thoughts to have less of a grip and less of a hold because there's little productive, there's little good that comes from being really good at starving yourself, I suppose. Um, But I do, I do acknowledge that the part, you know, the, the more of the OCD types of tendencies like there, there can be good in, in channeling those um, in a productive way. Um, but it is just one of those things that's I have to constantly kind of check in with myself. Um, but I do, I do find it's more beneficial for myself to try and like tamp down the volume um, as opposed to channeling it somewhere. And a- after coming public with all of this, where would you put yourself right now? in terms of channeling that volume or turning that volume down? Yeah. Well, you know, I wish it was funny. I took a survey the other day. They were doing a, uh, some, they were doing a research survey on eating disorders during the pandemic. And it asked me to do a scale on one to 10 of where I, how like recovered I thought I was. And I sat there and I just stared at the question because it's never, it's never been asked to me like that before. 
Um, and I would say you know, some days I feel like I'm at 80%. Some days it's more like at 60%. It's kind of this ebbs and flows. And I think what really got me in the past was that I thought recovery was always a linear line. Um, and that I remember when I was in treatment after high school and I came out and I spoke to everybody in my high school and I said, but I'm recovered. It's in my past. Look at me. I'm the recovery poster child. I get a gold star. And then I relapsed really hard in college. And then at the end of college, when I was in treatment again, I said, look at me. I'm a plus recovery. Give me a gold star. And I realized, and so this go around, I told myself, I'm like, that's not, you know, you don't get an award for being at the best at recovery and that it is going to be a very long struggle. Um, and that there are days where you're going to be, feel way more at peace and days that are going to be really hard. And I think that that's a theme in any mental health, um, that, and then to not get down on yourself when you do start to backslide. Like, and I had a hell of a really tough few months from about March, March, April, May, um, this past year where I just felt like I was white knuckling onto everything, um, in recovery. And I thought that all of my hard work this past year had just gone down the drain. Um, and I, uh, what I need to learn is I just needed to ride it out and realize that there was going to be a few bad weeks, a few bad months, but that I could get through that without going back down a, like a bad path, you know? What, what kind of, um, practices or, um, mindsets like what what helps in those moments when you're when you feel like ooh like am i am i going back in a bad direction um like in those moments what helps yeah i think the biggest thing for me is outing myself um so having a trusted circle um of allies that i know that i can text pick up the phone call um, you know, meet and say, I'm having a bad day. This is what's happening. This is what's going through my brain. And sometimes just diffusing that is so, is so important and so helpful to me. And I actually, um, this past spring, I, so I've always, um, dealt on the anxious side. I've always dealt with anxiety. I've never mm -hmm. fallen into the more depressive states. But for a period of several days um, this past spring, I actually dealt with thoughts of suicide for the first time in my life. Mm. And um, I knew from my training, I was a resident advisor in college and we did a bunch of training around suicide and how to approach it and how to deal with somebody who was dealing with suicidal thoughts. And I knew the first thing that I needed to do was to pick up the phone and out myself and to call somebody and to tell them that these thoughts were in my head and I need to be somewhere safe right now, you know? And luckily for me, like they passed um, and it was, you know, a rough few days, but I stayed with friends and I surrounded myself and made sure I was in a safe spot. Um, and I haven't dealt with like a reoccurrence, but I think what I've learned from that and what I've learned from all of any of my mental health issues is that sharing it is so powerful and it just takes, it takes the bite out of the thoughts that are in your mind. So if you can get them out of your mind and onto paper or into somebody else who's listening, that can be a sounding board. 
that's like huge for me. It, it reminds me, I'm forgetting which of her books, but um, the writer Anne Lamott, who mm-hmm. I, I really love, she talked about how her psychiatrist told her that whenever she has an intrusive thought that is causing her distress, she should find the closest human to her mm-hmm. and tell her about it. And she tells this story how she was on a tour, I think it was of Egypt and up on top of a big building with the tour guide. And all she could think about was that she was positive she was going to jump off. Mm. So she turned to the tour guide and she said, I, my, you know, psychiatrist said, when I have an intrusive thought, I need to tell someone and I feel like I'm going to jump off this right now. And he just smiled and looked back and said, who doesn't feel that way when they're up here? Oh. Um, and it's just such a beautiful story because I yeah. think like, there's a normalization um, there's a normalization that a lot, lot of people have these kinds of thoughts. I'm curious, Amelia, when, when you went through the period of thoughts about suicide, yeah. um, did, were they, w- did you want to be having them? Were you scared that you were having them? What did you feel no. like it would be an escape? Like what, what was the texture of them? Yeah, it, it scared the living daylight out of me. I didn't, I don't, I never wanted to die. I never yeah. wanted to kill myself. Um, but these thoughts kept popping in my head and, you know, and you should do this. And that, and like, and I, and I was terrified yeah. because I, it wasn't something that I wanted yeah. and, but they just wouldn't go away. Yeah. So again, and I am not a mental health professional. This is just from my lived experience. Um, The reason that I asked that question is uh, one of these more common themes that OCD takes um, is called suicidal OCD. So it's when you have recurring thoughts of suicide and you think of all the different ways that you're going to kill yourself. You often feel an urge to do those things, but you don't want to. So you have the thought and then there's this enormous shot of anxiety that comes with it because you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I had that thought. And then maybe you have another thought. And this was a theme that um, that I struggled with for a good three weeks. It was the, like, of all my OCD themes, it was the, the toughest. It was the one that drove me to finally take medication. And... Um, it, it sounds like, you know, I it, like there's there's a I remember my psychiatrist telling me that there's like a suicidal ideation where you have a plan and then there's just a suicidal thought. And those mm-hmm. are very different things. And then, of course, I, re- I remember him telling me that in the OCD minds, like, well, maybe I did have a plan or like this would right. be my plan if I could have a plan. <laughs> but that kind of thinking is often um, OCD. And mm-hmm. another way that OCD gets misdiagnosed, particularly this subtype of OCD, is um, people are put into like hospitalization for being suicidal when in mm-hmm. fact they have OCD. And the hospitalization can often make things worse because then you're getting reassurance that like, oh, you're not actually going to kill yourself, which just feeds the what if, what if, what if. And then you get out of the hospital and you think something's wrong with you more than OCD. Um, so again, it's just, you know, I'm doing this part as a service for listeners. Obviously, um, I have a bias because that's what I've experienced. But, um, you know, those kinds of suicidal thoughts that are not followed. I remember my psychiatrist telling me that a thought like that, that is followed by a sense of relief, like, oh, wouldn't it be nice just to escape? Yeah. 
that is a very different thought than a thought like that that's followed by, oh my God, why am I thinking this? Oh yeah, yeah. And that's that's a very good differentiation because I don't think I really understood it either because I'd never dealt with that. But I remember calling my therapist, um, you know, talking to psychiatrists and like, what is going on and why am I having these thoughts? Yeah. Um, As an sure. aside, in our broken healthcare system um, here in the States, I um, that's what it took me to finally get to a psychiatrist. So I like had had these yeah. other OCD themes, mm-hmm. but you know, I would see a, a primary care doctor or a PA. And then for me, and I've written about this, we can, we can throw the article, we'll throw all these articles, Amelia's article, all this stuff in the show notes. I was on a long car ride and I was just utterly convinced I was going to drive off the road. Yeah. Um, and like, I was convinced that I wanted to drive off the road. And if you call your healthcare system and you tell them that you get to see a psychiatrist. Um, <laughs> so like that car ride was the worst four hours of my life. And yeah it was kind of a blessing because it finally got me to a person that could diagnose me and it took him three minutes to diagnose me. Um, so it's just, wow. Yeah. 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 And I, and I think that there's also a lot of shame. I mean, there's shame around all this, but in, in admitting that, you know, and I mean, I had a very similar thing. I was actually riding down a mountain on my elliptigo and the thought popped into my mind. Why don't you just right off the side of this mountain. And I immediately like got off the bike and was just like, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, and so, but I remember just, if anything, just being like, I can't admit that to somebody. I can't admit that I just thought that, but it feels so overwhelming and terrifying. Um, but it, it's helpful to know that like, just because that thought pops into your mind, it doesn't mean that, you know, there's anything wrong with you um, for sure. And that there's a way out for sure as well. Yeah. It's really coming that realization. I mean, I still remember the first time I had that thought of like just driving down the road and then that thought of like, Oh, I should turn the steering wheel into oncoming traffic. And the first time you have something like that, it's like, it takes you aback and you're just like, what in the, like what in the world is wrong with me? Um, and it's hard to deal with. So like, how, how did you yourself come to terms with like that feeling of shame or that feeling of almost blaming yourself for like having, having these kinds of thoughts and experiences? Yeah. You know, I, I guess it's, if anything, I just think it's, it's practice. It's, I like to call them life reps, which is just over and over again. Like the more that you, give voice to something, um, the more you realize that it's actually not as quote unquote crazy as you, as you thought. Um, and, uh, and, and, and just telling people and the power of telling people and also finding the right people, you know, because there have been times in my past where I've told people things and gotten a very dismissive answer. Um, and it makes you, it does make you feel shameful. For instance, I remember, when I first came out um, to an ex uh, a while ago about my eating disorder and his initial response was, Oh, you have a problem with food. So does every other female. You're not special. Get over it. And I remember being like, no, 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 but no, no. Like I actually have a problem. And then that made me think, well, I guess, I guess I don't, I guess I should just shut up about it. You know, like there's nothing wrong with me. And, um, that kind of, and learning, and I, I, for many years, I thought that that was actually like 
that I didn't think there was anything wrong with his response. But now I'm realizing like, oh, okay, hold on. When you are dismissive of something like that, then it only just brings in like brings you further into the cycle of that. I shouldn't talk about this. I shouldn't talk about this. I should just shut up and move on with my life. So now that you have been so open about this, this is not the first yeah. time Amelia has spoken about these things. She's been on their podcast. She's written just so raw and beautifully about these things on her blog. What like and and because you have um, at least in the smaller like world of endurance sport, like you're a public okay. figure. It is totally okay to say that. So anyone that knows anything about endurance sports probably knows some, if not most of your story. How does it come up like in the workplace or if you're dating <laughs> someone? Like, right. is, it, is there like this weird thing where you have to be like, yup, like all that shit happened? Because on the one hand, and, and I think this is helpful for people that are thinking about becoming more open and then yeah. also people that like meet someone that has been open and they don't know what to do. Like, do you right. give that person a hug? Do you say they're sorry <laughs> for your struggle? Do you just try to talk to them about football? Um, yeah. yeah. So tell me more about that. Like being a public per- person, being so open, and then having interactions with people that might know a lot about your story that are just meeting you. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I think that that's a great question. Um, and it's it hasn't been a perfect kind of... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm still figuring it out to be completely honest. Um, and I know for me, I was very fearful about going back to work, um, after, cause I took a leave of absence, you know, I'm fortunate to have a job and a company that allowed me to take several months off, um, you know, medical leave to seek treatment. But I remember coming back and I hadn't told my coworkers why I was going. I just said I had, um, uh, health issues I needed to address and, um, when I came back and I told them and I was very fearful that it would, I would then kind of be ostracized or that people wouldn't know how to act around me. And honestly, they were just like, I'm so glad you got help. And then have just treated me like a normal human being ever since. Um, and I think that is actually really helpful for me. Um, look, I'm open about, I'm open about my stuff and I'm happy to talk about it. And people, I, and I do appreciate people who reach out and say, thank you. You know, I'm also like, I've had these struggles. I've had X, Y, and Z. Um, but at the end of the day, at least for me, I just, I like to feel like a normal human being. Um, cause we all have struggles internally. Um, and they just, some of us, come out about them more than others. Um, so I've actually been, it's been super refreshing to me that I haven't felt like I have this big scarlet letter on me or that I'm treated differently because of what I speak about. And, and how, how did that process go from, um, having this be, uh, big part of your identity and who you are. And for a period of time, I can imagine like when you were in recovery right after, maybe like the the foundational part of your identity mm-hmm. to now just something because like the, like you said yeah. like you're you know this is an episode on mental health and mental illness but my guess is that most days most of your time is not spent dealing with this because you're in a decent spot right now and you know there are yeah. bad days there are good days 
But how did you make sure that you weren't just like, oh, Amelia, the outspoken eating disorder woman? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that was actually a thing that I was very scared about when I opened up because I didn't want to be pigeonholed. I didn't want to... I had that fear of being the quote unquote sick girl again. Um, and I knew that I couldn't unring that bell once I, once I talked about it. And so I think for me, it's just this practice of realizing that I can hold different parts of myself and different and have all these different aspects and that I don't have to have the identity as just one for so long. I was the, endurance runner, you know, the obstacle racer, the quote unquote queen of pain. And then now all of a sudden I'm mental health warrior and a woman in recovery for eating disorder. And a part of me has tried, has realized I can actually reconcile those and that I can have parts of myself and that some days I'll be more focused on one than the other. And so I think for me, it's really just about talking about various different things. And that if I start to feel like I'm a little bit overwhelmed with the mental health aspect than focusing on something else. Um, and actually one of the best things that I realized in recovery is that, you know, there's a time to educate people. There's a time to advocate, but then there's also time just to remove yourself from the situation and protect yourself and like your own mental health and take a break from talking about mental health, you know? (laughs) Uh, So that's kind of what I try and do and check in about where I am on a daily basis with that. You you know, Shalane Flanagan on a recent podcast we did mentioned something Mm -hmm. very similar. She called it, I think it was her potpourri of identities, right? (laughs) I love that. And, and, And I think that is such a powerful point you're making there because, you know, uh, especially in kind of the internet social media age, we get stuck on like, oh, I am this. And this could be my job. It could be like my mental illness. It could be, you know, my racing, whatever it is. But it, it doesn't have to be that way. Right. Um, I, I'm curious, what would you tell someone who's listening who maybe feels apprehension or feels like, their family or friends won't like accept or take kindly to them speaking or being open to some of the, um, you know, things that, that they might be suffering from. Yeah, no. And that's, and that's hard because I realize I have been very fortunate in that the vast majority of people in my life who I have opened up to about this have been incredibly supportive. And I think that, the fear that they may not be is enough to, you know, to silence somebody um, for sure. But really, I would say that the way that I've always approached it when I've opened up to somebody is say, look, like, this is really hard for me to admit. This is really hard for me to talk about. um, But I trust you and I really value you. And so I want to share it with you. And most people I find are very responsive when you broach something that way. And they may not have the right, they probably won't have the right vocabulary to be able to respond in a way. You know, I've had so many well-meaning people who really, really care, but then like stick their foot in their mouth, you know? Um, But to understand that that response is not necessarily a reflection on you. And that if they're also, if they're not well-versed in the world of mental health, they may not have the vocabulary to be able to like support and respond. Um, 
but just to keep like the dialogue and the communications open. And then also there are situations and I was in treatment with a number of other clients who did not have supportive family and their family just, you know, was actually a source of their disorder. And in that situation, it's about drawing boundaries, unfortunately, you know, that sometimes you have to realize there are people in your life that may not be as much as you want them to be. They may not be the people that you can go to about this um, and that you may have to find outside support systems. And that's tough for sure. So I had one more um, question on the particulars, if you're comfortable sharing yeah. uh, of the eating disorder um, before I wanted to to make a hard right turn in another direction. But earlier you mentioned like white knuckling. What is yeah. what is like a good day or a good stretch of days look like versus a challenging stretch of days? Um, just as someone that has yeah. no experience with that or, or with family with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I'll speak clearly. I'm speaking my experience of N equals one um, eating disorders have such different manifestations. Um, so, but for me personally, a good few stretches of days are days where it's pretty much about at this point about mental space, how much of my day is occupied by thoughts of food, what I'm eating, what I'm not eating, if I'm eating too much, if maybe that food was too scary for me, um, anxious about what I'm eating in the future. Like that's, those are the days that are hard. It's like mental space. I'm far enough along now in my recovery where my, what I'm actually eating in a day doesn't really change that much, um, whether it's a good day or a bad day, but the amount of brain space that's there. And on days where everything's easier, it just feels like more freedom, that thoughts are quiet, there's just more peace internally. It's really hard to verbalize it as, like, as I try to tell people this. That, that, but that yeah. Sounds, that sounds a lot like like OCD. Yeah. Um, and again, yeah. not to conflate the two, I don't have experience with an eating disorder, but like a, a, a rough stretch is when intrusive thoughts are just always there in the background. It's, it's almost as if like um, you've got a computer browser and you've got like multiple tabs open. But w- w- if you shut down the tab that you're working on, like the big tab in the background is like, intrusive thought that, you know, OCD, (laughs) um, in a good day, like that tab is minimized. Um, and like the hardest thing for, for so many people, myself included is to learn not to fight against that tab and just like to let it be there because like all of these intrusive thoughts and feelings there, the more that you engage with them, try to make them go away, try to make sense with them, like the stickier they become. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's actually been one of the hardest things in trying to explain it to people that the very, the difference for me between thoughts and actions too with an eating disorder is that like I can hear the thoughts now and I'm like, yeah, they're the, like, they're the, the, yeah, like a chatty school bus that I'm kind of carting around, but I don't have to pay attention to them, you know, versus where, in the past, it felt like those were so overwhelming that if I didn't act on what the thought was telling me, that you know, I, life was going to end. That kind of feeling, for sure. So, before we take Brad's hard right turn out of this conversation, <laughs> hard right turn. <laughs> I have a uh, selfish question. What advice would you give coaches yeah. for dealing with eating issues, 
eating disorders and the like. Because quite frankly, coaches aren't prepared for this to understand or even discuss this conversation. But it's very uncomfortable, but it's something that we need to learn how to do. So what advice would you give us? Yeah, this is a really hard one because, um, you know, and I actually get asked this a lot. Um, and what I think what's so hard about it is that everyone who is suffering from an eating disorder reacts to being approached in different ways. Um, and so, but kind of my generalization is that the best thing to do is First of all, I advocate intervention. I do. Um, I'm super grateful. I had a soccer coach in high school who was the first one who noticed something was different with me and actually pointed it out to my parents. And I owe him a lot for that as much as I hated him at the time um, because of that. Um, but I would advocate focusing on behaviors and actions and noticing as opposed to physical appearance because Unfortunately, for better or worse, um, many of those, many of us who suffer from eating disorders, if somebody says, Hey, I noticed you've been losing a lot of weight or you're looking too skinny, in the back of your mind, your eating disorder is doing flips because it's so excited that someone is acknowledging that you're doing things right. Um, and it actually can further and fuel people to like go down that road even more. So, I think broaching in the best way is like, Hey, I noticed you're not eating with the team, you know, during dinners, is there something up? Can I help something or can I help you with something? Um, and that's hard because what I've, you know, it's not necessarily approaching it straight on. Um, but it is opening the door and unfortunately someone can't recover until they're ready to. You can do it for other people. You can try. I mean, look, that's what I, how I tried to quote unquote recover in high school and college was to get people off my back. Um, but until it comes from an internal place, um, it's never going to stick. So I think just really being there as, as a resource and saying, my door is open. You can talk to me anytime. Is it okay if I check in with you? Um, is really the best way to go about it for sure. Thank you. I think that's going to be so valuable to um, so many coaches and, and not just coaches, but I'd imagine teachers, friends, yeah. um, just anyone that is around young, young people. Yeah. And just to add one more thing, especially as coaches, and I know this is coaches in any ways, is to take the emphasis off of food and body when it comes to running, you know, because as we're learning more and more that weight has very little to do with pace. Um, just so if you almost create it as a culture where that's not the focus, then that can just like to ha create that supportive environment um, for sure. Yeah. Steve was tweeting about this the other day. And, yeah, I saw that. And, and on the call, I'm like the least, um, the least, you know, expert in running. But I remember just thinking it's like weight is weight and performance is performance. Mm -hmm. And those are two very different things. Yeah, I tweeted that because it's unfortunate. You see this a lot more in the college and even professional world than you would think. Coaches and athletes relying on weighing athletes and over-reliance, in my opinion, on a metric that really doesn't tell us much and can cause immense lasting damage. So it's something we should definitely be cautious about. Yeah. Okay, my hard right turn. Um, yes. 
So how do you do everything else that you do? Like, I want to kind of hear a little <laughs> bit more of where you're at. So you're like this, you know, this, yeah. this senior attorney um, at a huge organization after spending time at a really big law firm. You were yeah. a multiple-time world champion in Spartan racing, which is like the more serious of the, not to dog on like Puff Mudder, but Spartan racing is the real thing. Um, I know for a while you were training for Western states. Mm-hmm. Um, you're also at that juncture of your athletic journey where like you've maybe got a few more years and then age just does what age does to people. So <laughs> tell us, I, it's a, it's a multi-part question, but yeah. um, where, where are you at right now? And I'm curious how you have in the past balanced, um, you know, so let's set the way of all this mental health stuff down. How do you yeah. balance being a really solid attorney with being a really solid athlete and also being a very outspoken athlete, which I can imagine takes time and energy in and of itself? Yeah. Uh, well, the short answer is not well um, for the balance. <laughs> no, I kid. Um, but I think for many, many years, I very much did struggle to find some type of balance. And I think that. I've always said you can do like two things really well and then everything else is going to fall by the wayside. And so I did make a lot of sacrifices over the years and that it was attorney work and it was athlete. It was, you know, training as an athlete. And then, you know, the, the, the social aspect, the relationship aspect really took the back seat. Um, and, that was where I was at in my life. Um, and I think I was fine with that at the time, uh, as I've gotten older and, um, maybe have taken the foot off the brake of like being super competitive, even though I still do have that competitive, like I'm still itching to get out there and compete now that I'm in a much healthier physical space. Um, but I've also realized that the mental health bonus for me of relationships and of the social aspect is more important. Um, and so I now have kind of like, it's, it's this very intricate dance, you know, that sometimes like I take the foot off the brake from training a little bit so I can spend more time with loved ones, um, or, and, um, and figuring out what that balance is. And I will fully admit that if I had kids, it would, be an entirely a different equation. I hat is off to all parents out there and how they juggle everything with that. Um, but you know, for a very long time in my life, I've everything is the answer. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I people I've... tell you that firsthand. <laughs> so, but it, I will say, I have a lot of people reach out to me and say, "How do you do the attorney thing and be an athlete?" You know, I'm a first, second year attorney, and it just seems overwhelming. Um, to be able to do that. And I, you know, I think it's all about priorities and what you really love. And if you really love something, you'll make time for it. And so I've always loved the training. And so I make time for it. And that means like, I don't own a TV. I don't watch TV. Um, or just like the little things that I think can take up so much time that we like take for granted. Um, but I've always found that, and this always kind of gives me a, a beacon into what I'm actually interested in is where I want to put my energy. And, um, and then that, you know, can change and will change throughout my life. Um, but I'm, 
like perfectly content, like with the balance of like run in the morning, work all day, you know, and then like have some time in the evening and for myself and then like do it all over again. (laughs) That's incredible clarity. I mean, to be able to not only see what's important in your life, but go about doing things like not having a TV to make sure you have the space to vote to what matters. You're very clear on what's important in your life and putting the focus entirely there. Is that something you've always had or something you developed? Mm, I think I've always had a very kind of strong sense of, of what I enjoy. And I'm very quick to cut things that I, you know, I, I don't. Um, and so, which is also problematic, then I will, will point out that if you get injured as an athlete, and then all of a sudden, all of your focus and you're like, wait, but my joy is in the running. And now I no longer have that. And so that's an entirely different conversation. Um, but really just, I think for me, has been a lot of streamlining of what is important. And like, are there certain things maybe that I would like more about? Would I like to have like a dog? Probably. Do I realize, do I have the time and energy right now to train and to like to train a dog and to take care of it and everything? No, like I understand that. And so I think it's about, for me, it's been prioritizing. And on the flip side, I actually find that having multiple balls up in the air, juggling work, juggling athletics is healthier for me than being solely fixated on one thing. When I was at the top of Spartan racing, and I was actually, you know, making a decent amount of money from Spart- from sponsors and racing. People ask me like, oh, so you're going to quit your job and be a full-time professional athlete? And I said, absolutely not. Um, because well, multiple reasons, but I also find that they always, they have that cliche saying that if you want something done, give it to a busy person. And that's how I feel about my life is that it's actually healthier for me to have so many things going on um, than to be fixated and obsessed on one, for instance. <laughs> so here's, here's a question that I often ask myself and can be, um, a little anxiety provoking for me. Yeah. Um, can you go not a hundred percent at something? And to give a very concrete example, is there a world where you have a dog or your family grows and you just treat movement like a 45 minute a day. I'm doing it because it makes me feel good. Yeah. You know, I think I, I, I'd like to say that I could, (laughs) um, there are certain kinds of movement that I actually can do that very well with, for instance, um, like swimming, um, for instance, but, and knowing that I'm not necessarily like it won't, I won't be the best at it. I'm actually pretty bad at it, but I still enjoy it. Um, and, but I think for like a very long time in my life, it was pretty hard to do that. Um, I honestly, I think age and perspective helps with that. Uh, but I, you know, I don't know. I think there's still a part of me that is very much performance and goal oriented in almost everything that I do. But it is, I also really love the process of mastery. Yeah. So I also really, the thing that gets me going and the reason why people always ask, like, why did you start obstacle racing? Okay. Why did you switch from obstacle racing to ultra running? And the part of me says, well, you know, I, I felt like I, I mastered my sport and I really liked it, but I wanted a new challenge. 
And yeah, so I, I love that. it's moving. Yeah. So it's like moving on from one to another and being able to do that. And I can resonate with that so much. And I don't, I don't necessarily think it is, um, like for me at least, it's not problematic yet, but I'm also not convinced it's a good thing. <laughs> and it's like the addiction to mastery. So, yeah. like, you know, I, we talked about this a little last week with Shalane. I was trying really hard to run under three hours in the marathon. I got really close. I didn't do it. It became more stressful than enjoyable. So right. I said, I'm done with running. I'm going to start strength training. And for about a month, strength training was really chill. I'd go into the gym. I'd train. I'd feel good after, like normal person exercise. Right. But after a month, it's like, all right, I need some goals. Like, yeah. I want to see myself get stronger. I wonder if I could deadlift my body weight. I wonder if I could get to 1,000 pounds. And now it's like I'm paying this guy a couple hundred dollars a month to coach me because I want to be the strongest person in Asheville. And it has nothing to do with beating other people. It's right. It's just like I feel like there are these certain areas of my life where I can pursue mastery and that makes me come alive. Mm-hmm. But then there are other periods of time where I just wish I could just like go outside and hike and enjoy yeah. it and not measure it. And I can do that, but I can't do that every day yet. And I right. look at my 85-year-old grandma who could be like a Zen master. She's so like with it, calm, collected. And her exercise is just a walk. Like she moves her body right. and it feels good. Yeah. Um, and I, I'd like to get there, but I don't know if I ever will. Right. I don't know. Sorry, there's no real question. It was, I guess, it was just me yeah. empathizing with. No, you. I mean, I relate to that because there is that point where the new venture goes from being like something fun and unknown, and I don't think I'm really good at this, to then you start feeling, oh wait, no, okay, now I'm kind of getting the hang of it, and now I'm kind of good, and is this changing the character and the nature of what it is? Um, and I think that that's something that I will always wrestle with. You know, if I take up. I like there was a part of me the other day that was like, I really want to get into cyclocross. Um, and oh, then that would look, you would, you, that would like look good on you. I think you'd be a very good cyclocross racer. Right. <laughs> right. And so, yeah. but then I'm like, okay, million, but could you do that just for fun and not have it be like an extra stress on you? And I don't know, frankly, honest, but I think that's why I'm always just, I kind of just stay in constant curiosity about that. So normally I'm the science guy and Brad's the woo-woo meditation zen guy in our <laughs> partnership. But I'm going to go ahead and claim the victory here in the zen department and my ability go. to be content. Yeah, it's a rare it's a rare opportunity that Steve um that Steve's out zens me. <laughs> well, you know with running too it's harder cuz as you know as you get older you realize like it's you're never at a certain point you realize that yeah I'm not going to get any faster so it's just kind of this well I what else can I do to enjoy it you know <laughs> but that's where Steve but Steve I am curious like to prod a little because I, I know a lot of our yeah. listeners are, are very much wired like us so but Steve you haven't picked up like the next mastery inducing hobby hell like i have to bug you to like look at our blog to make sure that people actually <laughs> read our stuff you're you're you have become like really chill and do you think that's just because you are so freaking fatigued from like being the best in the world as a high schooler and all the pressure that came with it or do you think that like you will still have that itch and one day you know you'll go full out ryan hall and start strength training and try to get really <laughs> strong like is that itch for mastery still there or, or are you like at 
Grandma Lois level. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I feel like I'm getting psychoanalyzed here. Um, you know, my superpower, if I had one, is to go all in and to go very deep and be consumed by something. But and tying this back to OCD that I've experienced since I was a kid is that that can also lead me to a pretty dark place. It can lead me to great successes, but also a dark place. So I'm very, very intentional about when I utilize it. And then I almost stay like hands off and am super cautious in things where I might feel like I want to go down that path, but I I just stop myself and I say, you know what? It's not even worth like, starting down this you know this spiral Mm -hmm. so i just make sure i don't go down that road when i don't need to or want to the second part is you know i just really love running i haven't tried or found anything that gives me that level of enjoyment i mean i've tried cycling and a bunch of other endurance sports and i'm i'm never gonna have the desire to be you know the cyclocross champion right it it just you know it's a, a, a case of interest not aligning with activity and that i think is the the requirement so for me it's not so much mastery in itself it's having those things line up and running gave me that spark but other things don't and that's okay so i I don't feel any need to fill that gap like you did in moving from running to lifting i'm i'm content and i'm i'm content with the reminder that a hard workout can give me right which is, you know, running a hard workout now might not be as fast as, well, it won't be as fast as it used to be, but it still reminds me that I have that control, that I can go to that deep, dark place in terms of giving all that effort and knowing what it takes to go all in. So it's it's like a reminder that I have that skill in my back pocket when I need it. Or like when I, you know, am in the book writing process and I need to crank out a, a couple chapters. Like I have that skill in the back pocket. I'm just very, very strategic because I know the dark side of it for me personally. Now, not everyone has that dark side, but, you know, I know what it is for myself. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I save it for when I need it. Yeah, I, I, I love it. Um the the like going all in and in being aware of it so it's it that i can resonate with that too and amelia maybe this will help you figure out your cyclocross situation <laughs> so the more i've gotten into strength training there's uh-huh. this part of me that like wants to give up my weekend hiking uh-huh. because i know that like going on long hikes is the exact opposite message to my muscles is like deadlifting right. a lot of weight so mm-hmm. my goal in strength training is to get as strong as possible without ever not going hiking because I'm worried about how it will impact my strength. Right. So it's yeah. like as strong as possible and then being really clear about like, well, what's the as possible part of that parameter? Yeah. And I think that's a good thing because I think also I have definitely in the past and especially, you know, when I was very, very competitive into racing not allowed myself to do other activities for fear, even though I wanted to do them out of fear that it would then impact my racing. And, um, and I get that. I mean, a lot of professional athletes do that. You know, there's, there's a reason why when a baseball pitcher breaks his arm skiing, they're like, why would you do that? You know? Um, but I've also kind of come to terms with the fact that 
I want to enjoy multiple things in my life and be multifaceted. And so like to not be afraid of that. Um, and actually this past year has been pretty good in, in teaching me that balance for sure. It's like, like if, if you're limiting yourself, um, from doing something that would bring you joy because you're afraid it's impacting something else, um, then that's like a pretty good indication to me that there's some type of something off in the relationship. Couldn't agree more. That relates to Brad's story of moving on from running when the stress around performance was limiting, right? So Brad took up lifting and has now gone all in on lifting, drinking gallons of chocolate milk to get those gains every day. <laughs> it's, to fight off, it's to fight off the bears in his neighborhood. Um, so... <laughs> For those of you, for those of you that don't know, I was a little delayed getting. For those of you that don't know, no one knows. Actually, that's not true. I've probably texted the picture of it. I texted you guys to everyone in my phone. So, like, probably half of the listenership now has gotten that text message. But for those of you that haven't, I was doing a bent over row in my garage here in East Asheville, and um, I put the weight down. <laughs> I heard this grunt and I looked up and there was an enormous black bear about two feet from me. Um, so I, I was at a level 10 stress response coming into this this conversation. Um, okay, sorry for the interlude. Go on. <laughs> it's all good. I, I always love a good uh, back and forth on strength versus endurance. Um, I will always take the endurance side. But back on topic, you know, Amelia, you're all-star of everything. You protect your time. You prioritize. What books are you reading right now? What am I reading? Oh, so I just started a book um, called The Empathy Exams um, that was sent to me by a friend. And I'm totally blanking on the author and it's sitting oh, on the other girl. side. Oh, that's our girl. That's Leslie Jameson. Yeah. That's why I was like, I was like, wait, I know the author. Why? Yes. Um, and, um, and I think it's, so I'm only a few pages in, so I can't tell you exactly if I recommend it or not. Um, but it is about, um, as I've realized in my life, I am a major empath and, um, I feel a lot and I used to be really scared of that. And so I'm uh, excited to dig into it. Love it. Well, um, Thank you so much, Amelia, for taking the time, for opening up, for just being who you are, being so honest, being willing to have um, conversations that I, I know personally can bring up all kinds of difficult emotions <laughs> before, during, after. Um, we really appreciate it. Um, we're going to end this podcast by saying that if you are struggling with um, thoughts of despair or meaninglessness or self-harm, please, please, please do not be ashamed to get help. In the show notes, we will include um, various resources for you to get help, including the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. So if you need help right now, you can call that number. Um, with that, we will sign off until next week. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Amelia. Thank you, Steve. Um, Steve, you know I love you. Amelia, I love you too. I just love both of you guys and um, really appreciate that I have people in my life that I can have these kinds of conversations with. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, 
www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.